podcast. I'm your host, Steph Gordon. Today on the show, Dakota Durham will be talking about the barriers and avenues for dialogue between the far right and the far left. Dakota is a Canadian writer and activist with a background in global studies and women's studies. She is deeply invested in and passionate about criminal justice reform. Her writings examine the lack of accountability of power holders, which has proliferated corruption in the judicial system and institutionalized bigotry and violence. In her research, she examines the merits of a judicial system based on restoration rather than retribution. The topic that she is discussing today addresses the foundations of conflict mitigation, which is empathy and willingness to listen to opposing views. At the end of the podcast, she provides some ideas about how dialogue can be put into practice. It seems that over the last five years, society has grown more and more divided. According to the Pew Research Center, as of 2014, society is more divided by political ideologies now than any time in the last 20 years, going beyond dislike to seeing each other as threats to America's best interests. And as of 2019, Democratic and Republican politicians are severely divided on what they consider to be important issues for America. From an outside perspective, it seems on the far right side, people have moved towards isolationist ideologies of wanting Brexit or to build a wall between countries due to rhetoric that paints people of a specific national origin a threat to national, economic, and cultural security. While on the far left, many have pushed back against free speech and into identity politics. Because of this, many people, including myself, have asked if the far left and far right can bridge this rift in society, or if it will only deepen as time goes on. In this podcast, I will be analyzing the far left and the far right in the West, examining each of their motivations, beliefs, and narratives of themselves and about the other to understand how a dialogue between these two extreme groups can be initiated. I will then give suggestions on how we as a society could go about creating this dialogue by moving towards the center and away from ideological extremes. In order to do this, I will start by examining the far right, then the far left, looking at both of their motivations and beliefs, how they perceive themselves, and how society views them. After, I will explore the reasons for the deepening divide in Western society, specifically looking at the role of social media, politicians, and the media. Subsequently, I will consider the importance of dialogue and the implication, concessions, and the possible outcomes if we refuse to engage in a dialogue as well as how to begin a dialogue between two extreme groups. Lastly, I will give my concluding remarks. However, before all of this, I will begin by giving the definitions of the far left and the far right, as well as the center left and the center right. To understand these two ideological positions, we need to understand exactly what these terms mean, as there is often confusion and contention around them. I will therefore be laying out what I mean by terms like far right and left and other important concepts. The far right is an extremist ideology championing white supremacy and anti-Semitism. It is also sometimes known as the alt-right, a name far-right speaker Richard Spencer came up with in order to counter the notion that the people within the group are seen as neo-Nazis. Interestingly, many people refuse to even entertain the idea that a far-left exists at all, and argue that to say there is a far-left is to be on the side of fascists. Yet this does not mean that one does not exist. The unwillingness of the far left to acknowledge anything outside of their own narrative 
and their dismissal of anyone who opposes their views is one of the most dangerous things about the far left. Those who do admit to the existence of the far left state that it is rooted in authoritarianism, violence, and censorship. The center-left and right are more moderate, with the center-left focusing on democracy, equality, and collectivism, while center-right tends to believe in individual freedom, small governments, and social hierarchy. I will begin this in-depth analysis looking at the far right and if they believe themselves to be white supremacists. In order to be able to start a dialogue between two extremist groups, we need to understand the group's ideologies. Thus, it is of the utmost importance that we discuss who the far right believe themselves to be and whether they view themselves as white supremacists or not. According to an article on altright.com, the alt-right is first and foremost an identity movement. As a movement, it appeals to those who feel atomized and alienated in modern Western society. We offer pride and self-affirmation instead of hate and self-loathing. Thus, the group sees themselves sticking up for white males who have been stereotyped negatively by Western society. To them, they are the saviors of white men. This is obviously unsurprising because why would they see themselves as the bad guys in their own ideologies? Vincent Law, in his 2017 alt-right article, does not explicitly say white supremacy, but instead uses terminology common among far-right groups, which I discussed shortly, and encourages people to avoid any action that might trigger normies, such as flying the Nazi flag. Normies are those who are not on far-right. People can maintain their connections to white supremacism while wanting to avoid alienating people with items like Nazi flags. Far-right ideologies are rooted in white supremacy and anti-Semitism, even if they are not explicitly stated. According to David C. Atkinson's article on far-right extremists, there are eight concepts that are central to the far-right ideology. The Jewish question, the 14 words, white genocide, white nationalism, identitarianism, race realism, misogyny, and the ethno-state. The Jewish question is the belief in the conspiracy of world domination through the media, government, and universities by the Jewish community. The 14 words and idea of white genocide go hand in hand. The 14 words, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children, were first iterated by David Lane, a white supremacist in 1984 when he killed Alan Berg, a Jewish radio host. These words speak to the fear of white genocide and race realism, which underpin far-right ideologies. The fear that the West, a predominantly white Christian state, is being overtaken by people of different colors, ethnicities, and religions, and that these people are less than white Westerners, both biologically and intellectually. These beliefs are rooted in fears of being left behind by society, as well as in anger, especially among white millennials who do not believe that they are privileged in a society where they cannot find employment and have little job security. This demographic is suffering from deepening mental health problems. Despite this understandable anger among white millennials, beliefs in things like the Jewish question and race realism do not appeal to the average person. A study by Fleischmann from 2018 found that the far right only represents 6% of America's population. According to a study from the 2016 American National Election Survey, this number could be 8%, or 24 million among 325 million Americans subscribe to far-right ideologies. The 2018 study asked questions about whether identifying as a white was important to the respondent and about the importance of white solidarity in the face of white discrimination. The more people agreed with these beliefs, the farther right they would fall on the ideological spectrum. 
While this does not mean that all 24 million of these people are far-right extremists who adhere to Atkinson's eight concepts, it does show that beliefs like white genocide are substantial fears in the United States. Yet it is not just America that is seeing a resurgence of nationalism and far-right ideologies. Across Europe, most notably in Austria, Hungary, Poland, Switzerland, Italy, France, Belgium, and Denmark, far-right beliefs have steadily been on the rise. From where I'm currently speaking, while Canada is known for its overly liberal ideologies, 2017 saw a 47% rise in hate crimes, which were mainly directed towards Jewish, Muslim, and Black communities, most notably in the shooting of the mosque in Quebec City killing six Muslim men in January of that year. According to Barbara Perry and Ryan Scrivens, this far-right extremism in Canada has been steadily rising since the 1990s, and like American far-right extremism, is based in anti-Semitism, xenophobia, and nationalism. The concept of white nationalism, or the imagined white community, is complex, but like white genocide, it is built on fear, white nationalist identities are built on what they perceive themselves not to be, and in the fear other cultures will disrupt national or community identity and create divisions in society. Yet across Western society, for the most part, excluding Hungary, Poland, and Austria, these groups still seem to be on the fringes of society, with governments in Europe and Canada funding resources to not only counter homegrown extremists, but also developing tools to pull people out of far-right extremism. This is seen specifically in Germany with the Exit Deutschland, which works to de-radicalize and assist those attempting to break free on, of the far-right. However, despite their small presence, the far-right is still seen frequently in the media and in academic discussion. Far-right presence is especially felt when juxtaposed to the far-left. It is important to understand how the far-right views the far-left in order to be able to break down divisions causing rifts in society, especially as this polarization seems to be growing. Many conservatives believe the liberals to be condescending, especially when one brings up universities and their left-leaning ideologies. There is a widely held belief among the far right that they feel left behind by society. An example of this belief is the 14-word statement which speaks of the need to revive the white identity in the face of perceived lost ground. Many people, whether they be conservative or liberal, believe that liberals are pushing those with right-wing leanings to become even more extreme in their beliefs. Although people are ultimately in charge of their own choices, we need to address the pervasive nature of these views fixated on lack. There is feedback between the ideological poles of society. Actions and discourses of the far right spur the far left, and actions and discourses of the far left spur the far right. To understand how this happens, we need to understand exactly who the far left is. As previously noted, many scholars and writers argue that the far left does not exist and that the idea of the far left is being made up by people like Donald Trump to justify the far right. The presence of the far left is used to justify the far right, and far left segments of society are indeed exerting their influence in society in real ways. Refusing to admit to their existence makes far left extremism even more dangerous to society. Yet how do the far left see themselves? In a paper examining what public universities should be doing to counter hate speech, Rex Welshin argues that controversial speech and facilitating controversial speech undermines democracy and that universities should create safe spaces for protesters and vulnerable groups. The far left sees itself as an advocacy group for marginalized groups and seeks to push the world to a more equitable society.
While this sounds nice, some liberals have argued against this refrain, asserting that while the far left says it is speaking for marginalized groups, they in fact ignore these members while shaming other liberals that speak out against them. The tactic of the left is then one based on moral authority. Questioning the normative beliefs around the center-left can make one subject to being labeled a bigot, xenophobe, racist, sexist, even if these are not the ideologies that you are espousing. Phillips and Yee argue that the far left has adopted traits of authoritarianism in its suppression of free speech and exclusion of those in society with opposing views. And while it has not worked legally, it has worked socially through violence and shame. Phillips and Yee argue that the far left's social wall against free speech is corroding public discourse, which can be seen in a survey post-Charlottesville that 53% of undergraduates believe that a positive learning space requires the ban of language that would be deemed offensive to certain people. This is further represented in a study by John Villasenar of 1,500 undergraduate students across 49 states in the United States about their views on free speech on university campuses. The survey found that 62% of those identified as Democrats believe that students are in that right for not allowing a controversial speaker to espouse their views, as compared to 39% who identify as Republican. The effort to shut down controversial speakers instead of making an opportunity to debate the speaker's idea is undermining democracy. If we do not address or discuss why someone would have such extreme views, then people will only become more entrenched in their extremism. Shutting down such talks only serves to prove the far right to be correct in their beliefs of the far left, refusing a discussion for political correctness sake, or that liberals are overall violent and extreme themselves. This is especially true given the many times that the far left was in the news for shutting down controversial speakers with controversial means, most infamously when the far left protesters at Berkeley caught the attention of the media when they resorted to extreme violence to protest an anti-Marxist event. The attitudes the far left has adopted has resulted in some people arguing that they are harming society with their extreme ideologies rather than helping it. We can see this in arguments of the far left's failure to distinguish between conservatism and extreme right beliefs, resulting in the left's loss of power and moral authority. Further, as previously mentioned, some scholars also argue that the far left's refusal to concede and their extreme fervor in calling out people is pushing people further right-wing in their beliefs. Yet despite the great amount of evidence about the detrimental effects of this calling out and shaming and conflation of conservatives and far-right extremism, many people in the far left meet this argument with hostility and derision. The irony is that the far left knows of the harms of conflation and actively challenges efforts to conflate other groups like Muslims with acts of violence committed in the name of Islam or conducted by self-exposed Islamic actors. In his article for The Atlantic, Connor Friedersdorf examines this argument and the far left's response, showing a leftist retort on Twitter to the argument against conflation to be, I remember when conservatives called themselves the party of personal responsibility. Now they're the party of, it's your fault somehow that I choose to be human garbage. Ironically, in this argument, the far left speaker is not taking personal responsibility for the effects of their own disrespectful and dehumanizing conflation of conservatism and far-right extremism in this Twitter argument. But the person is also using derision to reinforce the conflation while denigrating the lack of responsibility among conservatives.
The response to not only Friedersdorf's piece, but other similar pieces included contempt from Paul Waldman for both the American Prospect and the Washington Times, where he claimed that these journalists are solely blaming the far right on the far left, while also doing exactly what far left critics have decried them for, claiming to speak for minorities while ignoring minorities' issues. This is explicitly seen in Waldman's article where he undercuts the severe impact Hillary Clinton had on black communities in the 1990s when she used the word super predators to describe black men and the policies she helped implement to lock up these super predators. Therefore, the far left is undermining the detrimental effects Clinton's allegations have had on the black community in order to not have to address the harmful and corroding impacts their own allegations have on society. The obvious deepening divide in society along the political spectrum has resulted in many asking how this has happened. To answer this question, there are several things I am going to examine. What makes a violent extremist? The effects social media and echo chambers have? How politicians contribute to this divide? and how ideological political polarization affects society. Understanding what makes people turn to violent extremism is of great importance. John Villa Center found in a study on university student perceptions of free speech that 20% of Democrats and 22% of Republicans surveyed stated that it was acceptable to resort to violence to stop a speaker they disagreed with. In their research on why people turn to violent extremism, Kruglansky and colleagues identify three psychological components that are key to this turn. According to the researchers, people turn to violent extremism to fill a need of personal significance, as well as a deep need to be respected, desired, and for their place in the world to matter. In order to do this, the authors argue that an ideological narrative of political extremism fulfills the need for significance as it gives the individual a worthy cause to fight for as well as a means to do it. Lastly, they argue that the third component of radicalization is a network. Whether they be like-minded friends and family or a group devoted to the cause, it's vital as this justifies and normalizes the extremist ideological narrative. Breaking down how political extremism is created helps us to better understand what is motivating people and groups, as well as how best to address it. Additionally, it gives us a groundwork to understand the importance of echo chambers to extremism. The echo chamber of ideologies is worsened by social media such as Twitter and Facebook. An echo chamber is a phenomenon where people hear their own views and beliefs repeated back to them through others, the media, and corporate advertising, causing the person's view to be reaffirmed. Due to the personalization of Facebook and Twitter followers based on platform algorithms that give you more of what you view, this echo chamber can be worsened as we typically surround ourselves, especially in social media, with those who are like-minded in beliefs, which undermines the development of tolerance of other groups as well as other ideas. In a study on echo chambers on Twitter and extremist groups, Jonathan Bright found that extremist groups are much more likely than centrist groups to exist in an echo chamber even away from those considered centrists of their own political ideology. This is interesting as it shows not only are far-right and far-left individuals fragmented from each other, but they have isolated themselves from those in their group who do not share the same extremist views. This can explain why the two far sides are so disjointed from their centrist halves. Thus, there is a deep problem both in the far left and the far right of being unable to take critique of their own ideology, resulting in an echo chamber. According to a study by neuroscientists at the University College London, there is in fact a reason for this. 
Their experiment had 400 people connecting dots, found that people with more ideologically extremist views, left or right, have a misplaced certainty when they're actually wrong about something, and are resistant to changing their beliefs in the face of evidence that proves them wrong. Moreover, the study found that when confronted with the truth, those with extremist views refuse to be swayed from their views. Lead neuroscientist Dr. Steve Fleming believes this would be even more pronounced in political beliefs and decisions. This stubbornness mixed with overconfidence in one's ideologies is resulting in those in the far left and far right turning away from mainstream media and to alternative sources. Hence, in a study by Kate Starbird on alternative narratives among the far right and far left, many of those in these political extremes often use sources from alternative media sources that are known for spreading false narratives about major events. More importantly, she found that the individuals in these groups will go to several alternative media sites in order to fact-check the story, however these sites often have the same story, or a slightly edited version of the same story, causing an echo chamber of alternative narratives that reaffirms their extreme political ideologies as well as gives the illusion of diverse sources. The proliferation of alternative media is widely cited as starting during the 2016 United States presidential election and during Brexit, and it's used by politicians to spread their ideological views. It is necessary to understand how politicians have furthered extreme ideologies and been impacted by them in kind. As I previously noted, the Republican and Democrat parties in America are more divided on issues now than ever before. This division in political parties, both in America and around the world, can and has led to an erosion of democracy, corruption, economic decline, mass disengagement from politics, and legislative gridlock. According to Noam Lupu, fragmented political parties can lead to a more partisan citizenship. While this can be negative for society, many politicians may find this helpful for their own agenda. If we follow Lupu's argument then, this may explain why we have seen an increase in politicians and political parties using extreme ideologies to push their campaigns. This can be quite an enticing tool to use as studies show that across the Western world, public trust and engagement with the government is hitting all-time lows, causing those in political power to cater to the extreme groups that are involved in politics. This accommodating to a small portion of the population is greatly affecting society as a whole. This catering to certain groups is made easier, as Tulu Marja Kleiner argues, because of the volume of extremist voice. By this, Kleiner is arguing that because of political extremist groups on both sides of the spectrum are so deeply involved in politics, while more moderate and neutral individuals are less so, their ideology is seen as representative of the whole, distorting society overall. Politicians catering to and perpetuating extremism is having a negative impact on society as a whole, as seen in BBC's survey of over 19,000 people across 27 countries. This survey found that 3 out of 4 people in every country say they felt their society is divided, with 6 out of 10 people saying their country is more divided now than it was 10 years ago. This was especially true in Europe, where 77% of respondents said they are more divided now than previously. Importantly, when asked about what was dividing society, the most prominent answer at 44% was political ideologies, and the biggest reason to not trust a group at 14% was differing political views. Therefore, we can see opinions of division are widespread, especially along the political spectrum in the Western world, 
and it seems that the divide is only deepening even if we do not acknowledge its existence. Hence, to counter this, as a society, we need to be working on dialoguing with those with opposing views from our own, and the two extreme sides of the political spectrum is a good place to start. What exactly does it mean to create a dialogue between two opposing groups? Some argue it means being open to different perspectives and developing empathy for the other's experiences and views, while others say that it means treating the other as a legitimate group with legitimate grievances that need to be taken seriously and listened to. Creating dialogue requires all of these things, as well as people's capacities to be open with themselves by being able to be moved on their beliefs, as well as learning from their past. Most importantly, however, it requires the complete absence of shame. Empathy starts when groups or individuals cease relying on shame, such as telling someone their beliefs are stupid, wrong, and or publicly humiliating a person in a callout as a tactic to attempt to try and change their mind. Trying to force someone to change their mind may cause them to dig their heels in further in defense, as well as it is highly improbable that it would create the desired effects of a changed mind. Instead, the objective should be to show someone a different narrative than their own and then let them decide for themselves. The importance of this kind of judgment-free dialogue cannot be understated. Society is under the belief that we are growing more divided with each passing year and that the extremist political groups of the right and left are both seen as representations of society despite being such a minor percentage in society. If we do not mend this growing rift, society and politics will only become more divided and violent as we saw in Charlottesville and at Berkeley. While the elite feed off the distrust to push through more and more policies around the securitization of the state. Working on a dialogue across the political spectrum can also be seen as a stepping stone to starting a dialogue on other issues of division society is facing, such as race, religion, economics, and migration. While these are great ambitions, people in society must first learn how to have a healthy dialogue with those with opposing ideologies. Yet in order to do this, we need to understand how to even start a dialogue. Starting a dialogue with someone so vehemently opposed to not only your beliefs, but you as a person seems exhausting and terrifying, but we must start somewhere, often in small ways. This is epitomized by Dr. Paula Green's initiatives, Hands Across the Hills, which she created in response to the American 2016 presidential election. Green is a psychologist who has worked in active conflict zones like Bosnia and Herzegovina, Rwanda, and Myanmar for the last 29 years to create a dialogue between two opposing groups to help them bridge the divide and live together. In late 2017 and early 2018, Green had two opposing political groups from very different socioeconomic backgrounds, conservatives from Kentucky and liberals from Massachusetts, come together to speak about their political ideologies and attempt to break down barriers and harmful stereotypes about the other to create dialogue and build a bridge. Green's tactic was to have everyone meet twice, once in Kentucky and once in Massachusetts, and through group meetings and potlucks, have everyone get to know each other's life stories. This allowed for stereotypes and caricatures to be replaced by respect and humanization, making it easier to discuss the harder topics like gun control, Donald Trump, and economics. 
While people's whole ideologies were not changed completely, they were able to empathize and understand each other's choices and perspectives, as well as find common ground, such as an opposition to assault rifles, that both sides are now working on together to have banned. These changes were able to happen through dialogue, and while some may say they do not understand the point of such things if people do not end up agreeing on how to enact change, Green stresses that dialogue is an important first step in trying to make positive changes. If we are so caught up in being right that we cannot learn to empathize with other groups, then where is the hope of enacting long-lasting change if we leave whole groups of society behind or on the fringes? Surprisingly, Green is not the only person to initiate such group interventions in response to the 2016 election. A few days after Trump's win, David Blackenhorn, David Lapp, and Bill Daughtery came together to create Better Angels, an organization committed to creating a dialogue and bridging the divide between Republicans and Democrats to depolarize America. They started with a meeting between 10 Democrats and 11 Republicans in Ohio and now have state coordinators in 51 states with 130 volunteers that hold workshops to help create and teach about this dialogical practice. From these initiatives, we can see that while society believes itself to be growing more divided, there are also people and groups working to counter such political extremism using respect, open-mindedness, and empathy, which is exactly what is missing in these ideological debates and discourses. Of course, there are people who will say that such interventions only lead to people agreeing to disagree, but this is in fact the point. Learning to respect and empathize with people who have different views than you is foundational to further civic engagement. Dialogue is possible with people who have extreme views such as racism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, and has in fact worked as shown by Exit Deutschland, which has helped over 500 people leave violent far-right extremism with only a 3% recidivism rate. Truly, the most important part is that the person is open to having a dialogue. If all parties are open to one, then it seems the hardest part is done, as there are obvious cracks in the ideology. If the person is not open to a dialogue, and the dialogue is forced, then it is indeed counterproductive. In this podcast, I have discussed what centrism, far-left, and far-right mean, extreme ideologies, and their impact on society. I have also examined what exactly is causing the deepening divide in society, looking specifically at why people turn to violent extremism. The role of social media and the echo chamber, political polarization, and the effect politicians have on extremism. Lastly, I analyzed what dialogue is, why it is important, and how to start one, giving specific examples of groups' work on this front in order to show how to begin a bridge between two extreme groups in the West that have overtaken the political spectrum through divisive language and call-out culture that pushes more people into the fringes of society. My central argument is that empathy for self and others and an open mind are the most important things to politics. Without empathy for others, buying into divisive ideologies becomes easier. Without empathy for ourselves and without an open mind, it becomes impossible to even fathom having a dialogue as one's beliefs become too ingrained to be changed. In these conditions, people will continue to see their ideologies as correct and avoid being held accountable for their effects. While there are many other steps to be taken in order to create a more just and equal society, dialogue helps break down preconceived notions, notions that people may not even realize they have. 
Conducting dialogue in a non-judgmental and open way is one of the best ways to initiate productive change.